Fergus is going to take a minute to pull Mad Spitter aside and explain his position. Um, this is like right before he leaves to get on the train or the plane or whatever that'll take him to the staging area from which they'll confront one eye. He, um, right before he leaves headquarters, he's packed up. Um, some, he's packed up his suit. He's wearing one of his disguises. He's got, he's not even going to bring a, a device with him. Like, he doesn't want to give One-Eye any avenues for attack. So he's just, like, stuffing the last piece of clothing into his duffel bag. He calls Spitter over. And he says, Look, uh, Spitter, I, I think I understand why this desire for secrecy on my part is strange to you. You you are a child of the uh, hip-hop era. I, I know you make beats in your spare time, and I know part of you still dreams of being known for your uh, rhymes, but... <sighs> But if I'm known about, uh, if I am noticed the way you would be as an MC, people could get hurt. And he gives him a brief summary of what happened with Blowhard. Now, I never followed up on this, but I'm assuming that people, other than the cop who I used as a corpse puppet... (laughs) I'm assuming people other than that were hurt in that incident. And so, you know, Fergus is like, this guy from my past came back to get me. And, you know, he he came at me through innocent people. I couldn't get there in time to stop him from hurting people. I had to kite him away from where people were so we could fight safely. It took a lot of time and effort and energy. And it might have not worked. He, he plays up blowhard a little bit. Well, he doesn't have to play it up too much because... Was Spitter there for that? Damn, I'm getting old. But anyway, whether he's telling him this for the first time or just reminding him of something, he's just like, look, this is why I can't be known about. I was in Chicago for a while. I, you know, I made an entire organized group of enemies. They had a name. They had stationery. I don't know if the Society for Villainy had stationery, but Fergus will tell him that they did. Um, so he's like, you know, this might not make any sense to you, but, um, you know, I have people gunning for me, and when they can't get to me right away, they try to hurt people who have nothing to do with it, people who can't protect themselves. And he's also like, plus you're a millennial and you all love publicity and that's just not the way I was raised. But he he's reluctant to throw that in because he knows that's going to get him some, you know, called dad again. But um, he explains that to him before he goes. Uh, the only other thing that I, I want to put in your ear um, is that looking ahead... Fergus has been, like, trying to... He's been spending a lot of time interacting with connected machines, 
people's digital devices and stuff. And um, he's also been pondering the, the phenomenon of, like, crowds of people. So he's 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 starting. He's he's just barely begun the process of experimenting with a couple of alternate modes for his powers. I don't know when we're gonna do advancement. It doesn't matter. Whenever it happens, I'm interested in him adapting his mind control into like a a crowd control sort of mode, where he can take over multiple people at once, but only if they're me humans. That's mere humans for you listening at home. Um, you know, people who aren't meta in any way. Um, so, you know, that would like, he, he would, he, he would think of that as like an ensemble cast. Whereas when he controls one person like there, they become the, the protagonist in a sense. But, um, He's also going to be looking into using his telekinesis to interface directly with machines. He knows a little bit about computers, but pretty much just enough to get himself in trouble. Um, and I don't think he's going to actually sit down and learn it the way that a normal human being learns it. I think he's just trying to send his mind into the network. I think he's trying to develop a, a, a way, a sort of like psycho data kinesis kind of thing. But as I said, that's for down the road, whenever we advance, whenever that might be. Doesn't really matter now. Just wanted to put that in your ear. Um, so he says goodbye to the team. He's just like, 138, we're going to get you to somebody who might be able to help us all understand what happened to you. And, you know, meanwhile, we're going to try and keep you safe and blah, blah, blah. He tells Spitter, you know, this is why I don't want to be known about. And um, he rewards Seven's loyalty with some sort of display of trust and vulnerability. He, uh, maybe he lets Seven see him in a, a a moment of weariness he's like packing up and seven is passing by and he's just sort of standing there looking haggard and just sort of like downcast and he looks up at seven and sees him and sees them and just smiles and maybe before he leaves he's just like i don't know what i'd do without you or something like that um which is at least partly sincere Puppeteer drives south, southeast of Chicago about a, an hour um, before you'd hit the city. And he finds an old derelict military base. Uh, there's grass growing in between the concrete slabs, and the, the buildings are dilapidated and rusted. Um, the paint that's on them is still that kind of uh, uniform, uh, drab, military green. And you don't notice any cars or anything, but Reverb kind of alluded that um, this was going to be a very low-key project. And you drive up to a, a large building that he had mentioned to you. It has a big C on the outside of it. And it's the largest of all the structures. You figure maybe it's a hangar or something like that. And as soon as you 
uh, park your borrowed and or stolen vehicle. A um, fairly nondescript looking man in a black suit and a white shirt and a black tie with black sunglasses and an earpiece comes walking out to you and gives you a nod and holds his hands out for the, the key and you know, hesitantly at first, you, just, you hand it over to him and he says, Sir, inside there. Uh, actually, he just says, Sir, and, and gives you a nod and drives off with the car. And you, you see it as he drives out the way you came in. You know, you, I'm, I'm supposing that you're in your, your costume at this point. If not, you you quick change and uh, put on your mask and everything. You go in and um, the outside belies the activity that's in that's happening inside, and the lights are on and everything. But you notice you don't see that from the outside. You see characters in colorful costumes, and you see government agents and officials and. Uh, people in lab coats and there's just all kinds of activity that's going on and one thing that you you see right towards the center uh slightly raised is a smallish woman with bright blue hair and even from here you can see that there's no uh, pupils or irises in their eyes and they're surrounded by a circle of heavily armed and armored agents but um the, this this woman doesn't seem to be looking at anything. She just seems to be, I don't know, her mouth is slightly open and she's looking blank-eyed, almost, almost towards the ceiling, not, completely not focused on anything. Uh, you see... Uh, improv banks of computers and monitors and other equipment all kind of piled around in the center room uh, where this woman is is the centerpiece. Uh, you can tell it's kind of cobbled together. A lot of these uh, computers and all this equipment is in cases that have handles on them so it looks like it can be packed up and moved quickly and off to the the back corner the far corner of one of the walls is uh, a bevy of uh, generators and as you're looking around it doesn't look like you've been noticed yet by anybody even some people that have walked close towards you um, they seem to be busy and going about their own business um, but there's a, a couple of notable individuals that you've either that you either know personally or that you know by reputation or through the files that you've had that you've studied up on them. You see the Sable Streak. Um, he's a, he's the most well-known super speedster in the world, and you know th think the think the Flash level. Um, He's a he's an older gentleman, and his uh, dynamic uh, black hair is given way to to his namesake. He has these silver streaks going through it, and uh, he either has a very um, expensive hair job, or uh, you know maybe fortune has has caused his hair to change this way. 
and standing next to him is quite possibly the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. You know, it's Madame Mist, and she's, she's got a half mask on, and she's almost um, Carmen Sandiego-esque with shining auburn hair that cascades down this side of her face and down her back and she's got you know this large red 20s hat and red uh, trench coat on but she doesn't have the the high heels in the dress you can tell she's got like uh, a combat suit armored combat suit on underneath from what you can see from her legs and also standing next to them is gyroscope and um you most people know his public identity his face at least uh he is not in his armor you can tell he's just uh talking to to both of these individuals and there are three members of a small group called the indomitables uh which is like the um Avengers or Justice League equivalent in this world, um, with the, the one of the main members being Star Shatterer, uh, kind of off to the side by himself. You see a an individual. Their skin is is charcoal black with these intense uh, pulsating red streaks going through it and you can see that they're like smoldering where they're standing and um, the concrete doesn't doesn't really burn like or melt like asphalt but um, it's cracked within a, a radius of where he's standing this individual doesn't have any hair or anything but um, you're really surprised to see this individual. He's known as the Burning Man, and no one knows where he came from or who he actually is, and he just shows up, and whenever he does, it's it's usually really... It's not really bad, but he leaves a lot of destruction. I think, uh, you know, Spectre-esque, like, uh, he... Uh, he's he might be mystical he might be a meta uh, no one knows for sure uh, you see um, a couple of familiar faces you see grotto who is the the, the plant hero from Chicago that you fought with uh, for a little bit when the society attacked and uh, I get you, you guys might have stayed in touch um, circuitously, uh, I'll leave that up to you. Uh, maybe you catch his eye and you each give you and give each other the, the dude nod. I'll, I'll leave it up to you if you want to go talk to him. Um, you see reverb, but he's got his back to you. He, he's talking to some people at a computer, uh, bank at some monitors and you see him, he's pointing to some topographical maps that are displayed up there. You see a uh, very curious individual. They're lean and almost inhumanly uh, thin at the at the waist and uh, in the gut, but their their chest is large, and they've got these um, large, 
almost insect cat-like eyes. Like they're, you know, they, they almost look like they're going to bulge out of their skull. And um, these long, skinny forelimbs and these extremely long, muscular legs and this long tail. Um, this individual is, is looking at you and they've got these very clipped, quick movements. Like you see them move and... Like they don't move for a while and then you'll see like this really quick rapid movement and then they're still again. Um, it's like a series of after images. It's this real kind of staccato movement and, and their eyes are large and green and their form besides being bipedal is almost entirely alien and they're staring at you but not, not aggressively or anything. And you look at them and you feel like you've met this individual before. And you're, you're kind of trying to rack your brain as to where and when, but you just can't quite place it. But they just, not their look, but the essence of this person just feels incredibly familiar. And you might jump to this conclusion. It does not feel like seven at all. Like this feels like an old acquaintance that you that you'd met before. Uh, you also see Turbine, who was the big one of the big heroes in Chicago that you um, you didn't really team up with him. But when you showed up, he was fighting Mortar and Pestle, the the giant. Um, that was rampaging the city and you kind of helped to trip up the giant while he was attacking. He was the cannonball-esque character. And you also see um, a, a hero that's recently been coming up who uh, Kinetica took the spot from the Four Corners Protectorate. And she went to a, um, this character went to a major uh, team in New York, and she's called Palisade. And she's a very, uh, think of a dryad. She almost looks like a wood elemental, a nymph kind of kind of character, but not very delicate. Uh, she looks very robust, and uh, you know that she can alter her form. She doesn't control wood, but she can like elongate her limbs or uh, cover them in thorns or, um, you know, she's very stout and robust. So um, those are the ones you know. There's probably two dozen heroes here total, uh, including the ones I described. Um, some of them are street level. Some of them are probably more powerful, but these are the ones of note that you, you know about right offhand. Um, if there's someone in particular here that you think should be here, I'd be, that'd be cool with that. Just a couple of things. First of all, Fergus is doing hide in plain sight. He has that feat uh, where he can stealth in everyday conditions, um, which is to say he's doing his best to use that. Of course, it's your call how well that works, but I figured if he could get away with doing that in full costume anywhere, it would be in a situation like this where there's a bunch of other more, much more big time metahumans going around. Um, so just a couple of things. He's gonna... 
So he's going to try and go unseen as long as possible. But I'm also assuming that what you said about the sort of alien-looking insectoid person staring at him still stands, which means to him that that person is unusually uh, acute in some way. So he's going to sort of like circle this gathering and periodically check and see if this weird person is still looking at him. Um, if they are, then Puppeteer will sort of surreptitiously make his way over to Reverb and lead with the question. Uh, um, I know you're busy, but who is that? If, um, if he loses that person in the crowd, if he, like, mingles or circles the gathering and, and looks back and, and, you know, insectoid alien person isn't still looking at him, he'll let it go. But, um, he's gonna actually go talk to Reverb anyway, in either case. It's just that if he thinks that person is still watching him, he leads with that question. He goes around and examines everybody one way or another. There's someone he's hoping is here, who he knows won't be here, but he can't help but look for. And eventually, when he makes his way over to Reverb, the last thing that he brings up is... um, So she... She didn't feel like she had to be part of this, I I gather. Uh, I'm I'm not... No judgment. I, I'm just a little surprised, is all. He didn't really think he would see Connecticut here, but he can't really let it go unremarked either. He... Well, you know how he feels about the Four Corners protectors. And, um, he was also sort of the part of him that's been serious about all the sort of hero talk he's been giving Seven and Spitter and the others was hoping to see her to sort of pull him back from the brink in some way. But, uh, the fact that she's not here sort of confirms his, his low opinion of the world and humanity and meta-humanity and the whole thing. 